amen. We're going to be in Ephesians today uh, at a text that I have studied intensely this week as Paul makes no no uh, bones about it. He gets right into the uh, purpose of election immediately in Ephesians, and so will we. This is a topic that is fraught with passions and emotions on both sides. Uh, there's been two main schools of thought on election for the past 2,000 years, pretty much since Jesus ascended. We've been talking about which view is right. <laughs> Traditionally, they have names. They're called usually Calvinism and Arminianism, named after the two men who popularized most of the theology. But I, I generally reject both terms. I once told another pastor that I have stubbornly decided to remain a Christian in all my theology, and not an Arminian or a <laughs> Calvinist. Um, so we're going to just stick with what Paul taught in Ephesians. And if this does challenge something you've learned in the past or how you feel about it, that's okay. Because we're going to stay with the Scripture. We're going to invest ourselves in what the Holy Spirit invested in the Apostle Paul. And if you do feel like, I don't know if I agree with that, I'm confused, then we're, we're, this is going to be a discussion we're going to have throughout this chapter and most of Ephesians. So don't. basically I want to say, don't be ruffled. Trust that the Lord is showing you things in the Scripture, and we will be just fine as we move through it. So, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand here today worshiping you for actions that you did before the foundation of the world. Lord, you set apart for yourself a people. First you called them Israel, but then you named them after the Messiah, and you now call them Christians. You call them the ecclesia, the called out church that is meant to marry that Messiah at the end of time, that great marriage feast that's going to kick off eternity in heaven. Lord, we thank you for this. And even as we sometimes will mentally struggle to understand how you are moving, where the Spirit is moving and changing the hearts of your people, Lord, we trust in a holy and blameless God who is just, who is righteous, who is perfection. We know what perfect is because we know God. Lord, we thank you and we now trust in you today to teach us these difficult topics, to explain to us through your Holy Spirit the actions that we are supposed to take and what our ministry will be in this movement of your Spirit. We thank you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul gets immediately into these deep topics. He states that God is to be praised. The word for praise here is a verb that means to speak well of. In the New Testament, it is applied only to God. Now I find that fascinating. Because we like to speak well of each other. We like to speak well of ourselves. We like to declare our accomplishments and our triumphs. Our failures, maybe we sweep under the rug a little bit. Or we don't broadcast those as much. But in the New Testament, this verb to speak well of, to praise, to lift up, to glorify, is only used of God. Now, theologically, that tells us a couple of things. Number one, we should be very careful about how we speak well of others. Instead of saying, hey, that's a pretty good boy over there, we should say, Lord's blessing him. And instead of saying, oh, that's a great lady over there, we should say, man, the Lord is blessing her and guiding her. 
See, we got to give the credit to the rightful source, shouldn't we? Where does the credit go? Am I, are my children ever well-behaved because I'm really that great of a father? No, because God's blessing. If it was all on me, trust me, you would see it. <laughs> it's God's blessing. Even His common grace, as we call it, that's upon the entire world, is blessing people. And sometimes they don't even know it. They don't even know it. Here in verse 3, the pronoun are shows that believers belong to Christ. And why wouldn't we? He bought and paid for us. He sacrificed and paid the debt that you and I should have paid. On the cross, he shed his blood and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do for you and I to be able to repent and be in the presence of God. Christ did this. So we belong to him. He is the husbandman. Remember the word husband is actually tied to the idea of owning land. That's where the original kind of verbiage comes from. So this idea of the man who gave us our land is the one who saved us. And where is the land that he is providing? It is not on earth. It is across the spiritual river of Jordan. It is the place we will journey to after our death or the return of the Lord. He is the second person of the Godhead. Since he is the Son of God, believers are connected with him. That means we are related to the Father. This gives us the title children and child of God. This is why I'm a child of God, because my brother, Christ, saved me, came down to where I was as the Son of Man, gave himself the title, and then sacrificed it so that I could be saved. That's why I'm a child of God today. I'm not a child of God because I one day woke up and just decided, you know what, I'm going to try that God thing for a while. That doesn't work. It's like trying one of those diets. You know it doesn't work. You eat that kale smoothie that morning. You have that lunch of salad and, and greens, right? No butter. And by that night, you're ordering pizza. <laughs> I was good for breakfast and lunch. Time to reward myself. That's what people do with Christianity. I'm going to try this out for a little while. And it doesn't work. Because it's consistency plus time that reveals the heart. It's not the big declarations that we make. Consistency plus time not only shows you who you really are, but that is the only thing that causes real change. That's why God uses sanctification, consistency over time. This God who is to be praised is the one who has blessed us. Blessed be the God who has blessed us. So God has blessings already because he's holy, and he's giving those to us who are becoming holy. We are being sanctified like him. We are conforming to the image of Christ. Now this is very interesting. In the ancient world, Zeus is a well-known figure, but it is not ever said of Zeus or described that he blesses anyone, rather he causes situations of good luck and good fortune. However, this verb is used over 400 times in the Old Testament, indicating that God bestows benefits directly to his children. So now imagine now the people who trusted in Zeus almost as if he was real. They're hoping for a fortunate situation to appear before them that they could take advantage of and hopefully get something improved in their life. I just need a shot, a lucky break. I just need a chance, a second chance. But God, he doesn't do that. He doesn't create little situations in hopes that you take advantage of them. The same way you would not expect a two-year-old to cook dinner that night. 
No, God, like that, that the good parent, he provides the blessing and places it in front of his child and says, this is for you. This is for you. The manner or sphere of this enrichment is Christ. The place of these blessings is in the heavenly realm, as opposed to the earthly realm of the Ephesians and us. The Ephesians had the goddess Artemis, and that's one of the gods they worshipped. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of her just because she doesn't deserve my time, but it's one that they worshipped. And Paul's telling them, you're worshipping someone who can only help you in the earthly realm. And her help is limited to just being a statue that you can focus on. Our God, the one that I'm writing to you about, the one that I preached to you when I started this church in Acts 19, this God is blessing you from heaven. Heaven rains down blessings because they're real. This goddess will never help you. She'll remain stone, and so will your heart if you keep worshiping her. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 16, this is a a sweet blessing that you and I can take advantage of today, not because we have to or I'm good enough to, but because I am a child of God and my Father has given it to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 16. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church who got a second letter. There was a funny joke going around social media recently, that if Paul was alive today and saw America, we'd be getting a letter. And he, would, and he wouldn't stop at first or second Americans either. <laughs> Four, five, six, sixth Americans, we'd still be getting letters. Verse 16 says, We do not lose heart. We do not give up. We who are child and children of God, we do not despair or cry out in anger or accuse God of wrongdoing. What the Father is doing is right. We do not lose heart. We've got to be strong sometimes. We've got to push through sometimes. Though the outer self, look at this now, is wasting away. Don't be surprised. We should not moan to God about our physical ailments. I've been running again, and I am not anywhere near as fast as I used to be. When I was 18 years old, I ran a mile in 4 minutes, 36 seconds. Do you know what I just ran the mile at? I don't even want to tell you guys. It was like nine and a half minutes. That sounds fast, maybe, but that's slow. I can't do it anymore. My lungs literally cannot run that fast anymore. I'm already old enough, but they won't do it. My body won't do it, and I can't moan to God about that. I can't bemoan the time that's already passed me by. Myself is wasting away. But look at, we have a break in the sentence. Our inner self. What is the inner self? Is that talking about blood vessels in here? Is that talking about organs pumping? No, the inner self is the soul. My inner self is being renewed. It is being remade, refurbished, recovered day by day. Because I am conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. So I am being renewed. I am not wasting away on the spiritual side if the Spirit is within me. Verse 17. For this light. And see, this is why I can be so cavalier about this. Paul is. For this light, momentary affliction. The pain you're struggling with right now. I can authoritatively say to you and declare that it is not that big of a deal. And you'll go, but you're not struggling with what I'm struggling with. How can you say that? I can say it because the apostle said it. It's a light, momentary affliction. No matter how bad, 
what you're struggling with is, it is nothing, look now, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. What's the weight of glory? It's the presence of God. It's the perfect worship service. You like worshiping God in church? Because that's what heaven is. And we're going to do it perfect. You're not going to have to go to the bathroom. You're not going to have to think about lunch. You're not, you're, you're not going to have to whisper too loudly. <laughs> this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I can't even give you an analogy. It's not a good preaching tactic. I can't even fully describe to you how wonderful, how perfect, how holy glory is going to be. Some of your loved ones already know because they're there. They're there. They're in the place of perfection. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen. Oh, if that was true about us. Oh, if we could truly say that, I am not concerned about the things that are seen. I am way too concerned about the things that are seen. And I get more feedback here at church about the things that are seen than I do anything else. Is that blame? No, because I'm the same way. But I shouldn't be. We should set it aside. For the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things I have to have faith in. I can't do on my own. I can't conjure up on my own power. I don't have any power to conjure. All I can do is continue to bemoan my situation. The things that are unseen is the Spirit work inside of me. That's what's unseen. But it's not unfelt. We'll see that in just a little while in our next, next passage. For the things that are seen are transient. Transient. I know that the 1930s version of the hitchhiker who's got the stick and he's got the hard bubbled knapsack tied to the end of it, right? And he's kind of doing the thumb thing down the highway. That's kind of endearing to our nostalgia. But the truth is, to be a transient is one of the worst existence. I, I, I met a guy who came by our church one time he and his cat were bicycling across the United States. And he still is. I, I follow him on Instagram. And he was telling me just how hard it is just for that. And he has funding. He has supporters. I've met homeless people who have come by who just want one can of soup, just something. And it's like gold to them, solid gold. Because being transient, there's no home, there's no bed, there's no pillow, there's no place of rest. You and I are transient right now. That's why we struggle. We're moving through this world knowing it's not our home, knowing there's no true place of rest. The only rest is in the presence of God and we're not fully there yet. So I can't trust in these things that are transient. I can only trust in the things that are unseen are eternal. Here it is again, our theme, the eternal purpose. What am I going to purpose to do today? Am I going to trust in something that I can see, that I can do, that I can work on? Or am I going to trust in the unseen work of the Holy Spirit of God? Where's your hope today? Please, don't put it in the things you can do. Because if you can do it, why do you need God? And if you don't need God, I don't want to answer that question. I personally do not want to answer that question. I don't need God because blank. I need God because of everything else. We are blessed. We don't even have to fear death. This is our spiritual blessing that has come down. 
from on high. Though we will die, we will live in what we cannot see now, but we will see one day. We will. You are blessed. Now let's talk a little bit about why you are blessed. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians 1. Paul describes a movement in Christ, in him, before even the foundation of the world. Now, I could go into a lot of theological terms. Supra-infra-lapsarianism, all kinds of wonderful long terms. But I'm not going to, and you want to know why? Because Paul doesn't. Now, I know these terms. I've studied them. I took Bible quizzes on them, okay? I had to memorize them all and organize them correctly in seminary. I thought about doing that to you this morning on the television, but I decided not to. Yes, it was a, it was a blessing from on high. <laughs> we could go into all that, but I'm not going to, and we shouldn't, because look what Paul says. We are given enough in Ephesians. We don't have to go to an external outside source of a man, no matter how brilliant. We can just stay here. And really for time. I don't have the time this morning, unless you're all willing to stay till about 5 o'clock tonight. <laughs> no, no one said no. Okay, all right, I'm down. <laughs> We'll get some pizzas ordered. Verse 4, even as He chose. He chose us in Him. Now that in Him is the most important part of that phrase, not that He chose us. See, the problem with even the Calvinist mindset is it still starts to be about the person. And I have met people on both sides who I feel left the Scriptures and went way too far. I have met people on the more Arminian side of I chose God. And so I even asked one one day, well, since you have the power to literally save people, to bring them to Jesus, when was the last time you did? And they couldn't answer me. They were just going to church Sunday at 11 o'clock, living their schedule, living their culture. And I was like, you have the power to literally get people saved, to do the soul winning why don't you do it? I think that's horrible. Why wouldn't you do it? If I literally had the power to get some people that I know in this room, even right now, that are not saved, to be saved, I could do it. And if I didn't, I'd feel awful. But then I've met people on the other side. They're typically called hyper-Calvinists, but I've met guys who go way too far. I, I even had a man tell me one time, well, I don't, I don't have to preach the gospel to homosexuals. They're not elect, so there's no point in that. I mean, that directly contradicts the words of Jesus. Go forth into all nations. Go forth into all nations. See, the problem is we begin to see doctrines and we start to create credit when we should not. I have heard more talk about who's not going to heaven than about witnessing to those who might be. Guys, that's horrible. Because that's not my job. I'm not given that role. God keeps that spiritual role for himself to truly know the inside of a person's heart. I can't know your heart. If I had that power, I would just only inflict it and infect it with my sin. And it, no one would be saved. That's why God reserves it for himself. But he's given you and I a responsibility. To go forth as the messenger of this gospel. To be a jar of clay, no matter how cracked. 
and present it to the world. Here's a quote from Harold Homer on his commentary. He says, The apostle first told when God's work of election took place before the creation of the world. God blesses believers because of the Father's electing, the Son's dying, and the Spirit's sealing. Both concepts are included. Spiritual blessings are the work of all three persons in the Trinity, and the work of the Trinity is the basis for all a believer's spiritual blessings. Listen to what Pastor John MacArthur says about this. He says, taught throughout Scripture, election is the perfect plan of God for the destiny of His creatures. It conforms both His love and grace with human beings' responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is key. If you would, turn to John chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to go on in this John MacArthur quote. The energy that has driven God's plan of redemption from eternity past flows from the power of His love. He chose us and predestined us in love. In love. It is solely because of the great love which He loved us that He raised us from our hopeless state of spiritual death. He loved us with an everlasting love. He drew us to Himself. Christ died because of God's love for us. Election is the highest expression of love to sinful humanity. Some people hate this doctrine. They try to explain it away or claim that it's not fair. But in reality, the doctrine of election is all about the eternal, perfect love of God. Fairness is not the issue. Grace is the issue. Now, that's John MacArthur, and he is brilliant. But I'm going to quote somebody better. John chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to exegete the next 20 verses together, so just hold on. This is going to be a little bit of a ride. I'm going to move rather quickly. If I skip over something, just mention it to me after, and I'll include it in the addendum. <laughs> Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we have a man who is not just a good guy or a good Jew. He's a ruler. He is in charge. He's a teacher. He came to Jesus by night. Why would he be meeting with him at night? Because he doesn't want anyone to see. He says to him, Rabbi, calling him teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God. How does he know that? He's heard about miracles. He's heard about the things Jesus has already done. So I know you're a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is confronting this teacher of the old covenant with the new. Because the old covenant says you sacrifice, you go to temple, you follow the Torah, you follow the law, and that's what your God wants. But this Jesus, he's preaching something new. It is a new covenant. It's where we get the phrase New Testament. Unless you are born again, Nicodemus is taken aback. In verse 4, he's thinking physically. He's applying his own presuppositions to the words Jesus just said. Nicodemus is making the error that you and I constantly make with Jesus. We apply our understanding, our presuppositions, our beliefs onto what Jesus has just said. Nicodemus makes the mistake. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? 
And Jesus says, no, no, I got to get you off your physical mindset. I got to make it about the spirit. I got to get it to the heavenly realm. Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is not a physical birth, Nicodemus. This is a spiritual work of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We're all born of the flesh, but we're not all born of the spirit. Not yet. That work comes. And now we get to the argument that everybody, and this causes the excitement, the passions, the anger. I have sat in so many pastoral meetings and counseled people, and this question is the one that comes up over and over again. And the one thing everybody asks me, everyone wants to know, especially when you talk about election, first of all, am I? Second of all, are my children? And then various loved ones after that. Rarely have I truly been asked about the man across the street we don't know. What really inflames people is the idea that someone they love is somehow not able to come to Christ because of election. That's the scary thought in most people's minds. Now I have to tell you something. That is true. There are people who reject God. They'll reject Him on earth and when they're cast into the lake of fire, they will continue rejecting Him. Where in Scripture is the man in flames who truly repents and wants God. Not even Lazarus and the the rich man. The rich man is in torment. He still doesn't want to repent. What does he want? A drop of water from my tongue because it's still about me. I still care more about my own comforts than even Lazarus and go warn my brothers because I love them more than I love Lazarus or God. This fallacy of the person who truly wants to repent and truly wants to believe in Jesus Christ, but they can't because of election, is not real. It's not real. Where in Scripture is that person? I've never found him, and I've read the entire book more than once. That person's not in Scripture. Even Esau, who sought it with many tears, but he didn't repent. See how many people have been at this altar with many tears? I once had a kid down here with many tears, weeping weeping his eyes out. A week later, he denied that he even was up here. When I asked him about it, he said, that wasn't me. Kind of sounded like Cain and Abel a little bit. (laughs) Not not I. Kind of sounds like Peter a little bit. Not I. You see what I'm getting at here? Now, let's move further into John. Jesus is not tricking Nicodemus here. He's not giving him a parable that he has to explain later. He is telling him the clear truth. Jesus is explaining salvation clearly. The Spirit moves where it wishes. Look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Here it is, verse 8. The wind, the Spirit, blows where it wishes. It. Where God desires to move, it happens. That's why we call upon Him when He is near. Because He's moving near. You hear it sound, and here we are folks, we have to confront this verse in our hearts. And I'm sorry if this challenges you. It challenges me. Because I got kids too. I got got youth at this church I want to see saved. Okay, I have to deal with this too. But you do 
not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this, doesn't, this isn't teaching that I can't recognize salvation, because I can. I recognize the spiritual fruits that come from the Holy Spirit's presence. The love for the brethren, the, the joy of worship, the, the love for God. I know that I'm saved because I know these things. I know that others are saved in here because I see these things. What this is talking about is why it happens in the first place. Why do people become saved? Why would I preach the gospel? Jesus commands me to do so to everyone. And let me say this clearly. There is no teaching of election that says there is not anyone who can't be saved. Anyone can be. Anyone can be. No matter their sin, their background, ethnicity, financial status, class status, whatever you want to use, whatever category, Jesus is big enough, strong enough, and holy enough to save them. And I know that because he saved me. But we have to be honest about the fact that there are those who will reject Jesus. They'll reject God and they'll reject the Holy Spirit. And they will not be saved. Remember what Jesus said about the narrow way and there are few who find it? I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. I'm sorry if that hurts. I have loved ones too. I have a person that I've been trying to, to, to guide to the Lord for almost 15 years now. And I desperately want to see that person come to saving knowledge of Christ. I really do. But they haven't yet. So I do not bemoan that they haven't yet. And I will not give up my witness of the gospel. Nicodemus says to Jesus, you may be feeling this way, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nicodemus doesn't even understand the coming lifting of Christ on the cross. In the same way Moses lifted up that serpent. Look at verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There is no limit on salvation for any person. The Son of Man was lifted up on the cross your identity, your background, and nothing about you will withhold you from truly seeing that picture, calling upon it in repentance and belief, and being saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, say it with me, you shall be saved. Anyone, anywhere, do not fall into the trap of thinking there's somebody you are not required to witness Jesus Christ to. You guys with me on that? However, we can understand as we study our scripture and we study our Bibles, that there are some who are going to continue to reject, and it may be because they are not elect. It doesn't actually change if you're an Arminian. It doesn't help you for that not to be true. 
Because in that theology, that person just gets to decide. And if you can never convince them, you're still at the same place. You're still at the same result. Nothing has changed. The person remains unrepentant. God is revealing some deep things here. Things that sometimes you and I will never even understand. And I know that's difficult. It's difficult for me. Because I want to know. God, I want to know. But some things he holds for only himself. I imagine my brain could not contain the infinite nature of it. That's why. That's why I don't know. All right, here we are now to the verse that everyone has memorized. And and I want to talk about this for a second. Because it's kind of become cliche to have John 3.16 memorized. Okay? But why? Why why would that be now something for us to scoff at? Like, oh, of course you know John 3.16. It's Scripture. It's God's Word. And it's a pretty good, succinct example of the Gospel that God has caused to be memorized by almost everybody on the earth. Could it be that John 3.16 is so memorized, it's another way God is justifying Himself on Judgment Day? No, you heard. You even hid, think about this now, you hid that verse in your heart as a young child, but you never believed it. How can you say to me on judgment day that I am not fair? Think about that. God justifying himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, compare the two areas. Verse 8, the spirit moves where it wishes. You don't know where it's going. But here in verse 16, this is where you and I are. We preach this gospel. And this is our limit right here. Trust in Jesus Christ. He was given by God for, to sacrifice for your sin. Repent and believe in Him. And then you and I are done. And the Spirit moves as God ordains. That is the two areas right there. It's often called the twin rails of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right there. You guys with me on that? I'm giving you the truth as best I know. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. See, this answers the question of double predestination, which doesn't exist because Jesus just said, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. See, you and I were all not believing at one point. We were all condemned. A giant river of human beings running off a cliff into the fires of hell. The gospel is preached from the mountaintop and a few, a narrow few, hear, repent, believe, and begin to move against the crowd, no matter how hard that is, to the mountain of Zion. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil and the spotlight was shined upon them and there was no repentance. There was no belief. It was just, I don't want to be exposed. So I'm going to go hide. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest he be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light 
that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now I want you to listen to a couple of quotes. There is no group or type of person anywhere in the world that is excluded from salvation because God desires that the gospel be proclaimed to all without exception. Here's another quote from the same person. No one is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is set open unto all men. Neither is there any other thing which keepeth us back from entering in save only our own unbelief. And the man who made those quotes, his name was John Calvin. Anyone can be saved. This is why we preach and bring the gospel to anyone. Now we do have to use our maturity and eventually sometimes dust our feet. That's hard for me sometimes. I know what I was saved from and I, I want that so desperately for others. And so I sometimes, I sometimes personally fall into, I should have dusted my feet already. <laughs> and I work on that. God's sanctifying me. I, I, I'm still practicing. So that may happen. You may have to go. Or the church, we may have to eject. But we do so in the light of the gospel. It's the person who can't remain because they will not conform to the image of the Son. That's why we dust our feet and that's why we eject. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't about conforming to Christ. It was about having community status. And that's why they're out. Anyone can be saved. This is why we preach to all and bring the gospel to any. However, they are saved because of the movement of the Spirit, the grace of God, and not any work of the human being. And I'm thankful for this. Do you want to know why I love the doctrine of election? Because from the foundation of the world, God was saving little aborted babies miscarriages. People born without the ability to speak, so how can they confess with their mouth? People born with severe mental challenges that from our perspective don't seem to understand the gospel, but from God to their heart understand perfectly. I believe that. That's why I love this doctrine. And the other thing I know is this. King David in the Psalms, in many Psalms, he questions God one time. He says, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why are they allowed to, to grow rich and be in charge and be judges and rulers and kings? Why? And God, and I'm paraphrasing him, answers here. He says, to show my justice. See, the little aborted baby that couldn't physically cry out, God brings to himself. But that evil, wicked judge and king, demonstrates their wickedness publicly, openly, and on judgment day, God will deal with them. I love that. See, I want this to comfort you now. I don't, I don't want you to be afraid of these doctrines. Remember our charge. Remember our work. Go back to the Great Commission of Matthew 28. All nations. Pas ethnos. All ethnicities. That's who you and I are supposed to preach to. Which means, and I can say this definitively and with authority, there is no one in your life right now that you are excluded from witnessing the gospel of Jesus Christ to. You guys with me on that? So I, I don't like hearing that, and I don't want to hear it anymore. 
Well, I don't have to go witness to that person. Now, you may dust your feet. That's a different topic, different category. But just because somebody is gay or a murderer or some other thing does not exclude them from your responsibility to witness. And it's your responsibility anyway, because here's how you witness. You're called to worship God always. That's the best witness. Once they see you worshiping your God, then we can get into the gospel and repentance. I want what you got. That's some good discipleship right there. Now, I've covered a lot of important things very quickly. Let's go back to Ephesians, and we're about to close up because it is noon, but I've got a little more. I, I truly do preach exactly what I think God wants, so sometimes it's early, sometimes it's late, but I just do what I, exactly what I think God has. Notice the purpose of Jesus and Paul bringing up election in Ephesians. So we just saw the purpose of Jesus in John. Paul doesn't bring up this chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's a foundational explanation for Paul's real point. Why did he bring up that we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world? The end of verse 4, that we, the church, should be holy and blameless before him. That's why. So let me tell you something. Election's not the real doctrine to get hung up on. Holiness is the one to get hung up on. Am I holy before you, Lord? Have I done anything that, that I could be blamed for in your presence? Make me blameless, Lord. Show me the areas I've made mistakes and help me to, make, to rectify them, sanctify them, make them holy. We should be holy and blameless. Go to 1 Peter, verse 15. Holiness is the most important doctrine because it's the closest you and I are going to get to God. God did not call us to become gods like He is. There's only one. But He calls us to be holy like He is. This word cannot even be truly expressed in the flesh. The flesh has to be removed for the perfection of holiness to be fully understood. 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is calling you to a standard that he applies and derived from himself. Holiness. You guys ever listen to Paul Washer sermons? You know what I'm talking about? I love the way he says holiness. I'm not going to try to imitate him, but just the way he says the word, you can see how much he loves it and how much he wants it in his life. It's very inspiring. It inspires me as well. Holiness! I'm, I'm, doing, this. I'm doing it a little bit. He's very tall. I've met him. He's like 6'4". You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's not a suggestion from God. That wasn't an accommodation. That wasn't a possibility. That was a command. A command that he is fulfilling in you right now. Our holiness is what makes us blameless. Go to Jude 24. That's verse 24. Jude only has one chapter. Jude 24. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is our end result. We're going to be presented in the presence of God. And there's going to be nothing but joy. I want that. I can't wait for that. This light momentary affliction, oh, it's so light. And it is indeed so momentary. But joy eternal. So let me be clear again and give you my perspective on the doctrine of election. It is true, authoritative, and scriptural. But it does not relieve you of the responsibility of witnessing the gospel and making disciples to any. You may dust your feet. You may even eject but you are given a charge from your God to be a light in this dark world. Think about John. You and I are in verse 16 and God is in verse 8. And he has called us, think about this now, called us to work together with him. How exciting is that? Remember the first time your parents gave you a job and you fulfilled it and the pride you saw in their eyes? For me, it was taking out the trash. Five years old. I got it, pops. How much greater is God saying, my child, go forth and be a light, and my kingdom will grow because of you. This is the point of today's text, and this is Paul's point. Blessings and election and all these doctrines are not helping you if they are not conforming you to the holiness and blamelessness of Jesus Christ. I once met a man, and I hope this is a warning to you, I once met a man who knew a lot of theology, a lot of Reformed theology, was so invested deeply into it, I even heard him make this statement. Yeah, I don't really repent of sin, but since I know I'm elect, I'm good. We have to be so careful. We have to be so careful that we don't get off into our doctrines, but we stay on what the Holy Spirit has given us. So I'll say it again clearly. The Spirit moves where He wishes. You hear the sound, you don't know where it's going. And I know that's tough sometimes. But remember, verse 16, we preach a gospel that whoever repents and believes in will be saved. That's our job. That's what we're going to do. We're getting ready for VBS right now because that's what we're going to do. And we're going to trust a holy and perfect God to move exactly where He wants. And I would encourage you as I finish to be thankful and to worship him today because he moved where you were. He moved where I was. Wretched, dirty sinners. He moved upon us. His gospel was preached to us and we repented and believed. There's people in your lives right now you may never even dream will come to the truth. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep witnessing. Keep being that light. Trust the Spirit to move when it's proper time. And be patient because perfection is coming. Joy is coming. All right, I've said enough. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that it is not dependent on me to acquire my salvation nor hold on to it. As John chapter 10 says, I am in the hand of God. Nothing can take me out. Lord, your spirit is moving and working. We are so thankful 
that he is working today, that people are being saved, they are repenting, they are coming to the knowledge of the truth. I had a pastor friend tell me just, just this past week that he has seven students repenting just this year alone. God, you are moving. Lord, but let us not give up on our charge, our job, of being a witness and a light of this gospel. Lord, help us when it's time to dust our feet. Help us when it's time to eject out of the church wickedness that has crept in. But remind us, Lord, that we are lights in this dark world. And we conform not to the image of darkness, but to the image of the light, the Lord Jesus Christ.